Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 192, Alfred the Young. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you'd like to support the show and help us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Amanda, Brian, and Charlene for signing up already. Have you realized that we have episode 200 coming up? I was thinking that for that episode, I could take some of your questions and answer them on the show. They can be history-related, but they could also be anything else as well. If you've ever wondered how the show was made, or whether I think that R plus L equals J, or if I earned that red lobster, well, now's your time to find out. Just submit your questions to thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or tweet them to me at BritishPodcast. We've discussed Anglo-Saxon propaganda and what goes down in Anglo-Saxon cities, so now let's get back to the main story. When we last checked in with the House of Wessex, King Athelwolf had just died. But thanks to his incredible fecundity, he had a wealth of potential heirs. And the Kingdom of Wessex, it was determined, would go to his eldest surviving son, Athelbald. The fact that the new King Athelbald had risen up in rebellion against his father only a few years earlier was apparently forgiven. All water under the bridge. And once Athelbald took the throne, he married his father's widow, meaning Athelbald's own stepmother and the daughter of King Charles the Bald of Francia. Her name was Queen Judith. Now, here's the thing. We're actually in a weird position with this story, and frankly, we're in a weird position with most history. Because we know how it's going to play out. We know that it would be Athelwolf's youngest son, Alfred, who would turn out to be the real headliner in that family. However, we're the only people lucky enough to have that perspective. For the West Saxons, Alfred was just the young, sickly, bookish sibling of the current king. Athelbald was the real headliner. So, in 858, it's doubtful that all that many people were paying much attention to Alfred since he had several older brothers, and no one could have possibly known that he would be the future of the kingdom, and the linchpin for the House of Wessex. But we know. So, even though he's a minor member of the House of Wessex right now, let's talk about what all this means for Alfred, because he's had a rough time of it lately. And when his father died, his whole life probably upended. Granted, the loss of a parent is always a massive event. But consider what a catastrophic change this would have been for Alfred specifically. Alfred was a kid at this point, probably only about nine years old. And unlike every other person we've encountered in history up to this point, we actually have an account of Alfred's childhood through Asser's writing. And according to Asser, Alfred, quote, was greatly loved, more than all his brothers, by his father and mother, indeed by everybody, with a universal and profound love, and he was brought up in the royal court and nowhere else, end quote. But here's the thing. This childhood account is coming from Asser only as dictated by Alfred himself, recounted much later in his life. So we're dealing with memories. How good are your memories from when you were about six years old? Do you have all that many? And even for the moments that you have, how good are they? Here's something that I've learned about memories. When you have a memory, you don't call to mind the actual event when you think about it. 
What you're actually doing is recalling the images and thoughts that were imprinted in your memory from the last time you remembered it. So, if the event was a very long time ago, your brain has been playing an incredibly long game of telephone with itself. Which is why memories can change and exaggerate. We might believe that our memories are, if not perfect, at least pretty close to the actual reality. And that's natural. After all, if you can't trust your own perceptions of your past, that kind of throws everything into contention, doesn't it? We want to believe that our memories of events are carved in granite. But... Memories are very easily lost, or changed, or merged with other memories. And it's why any good lawyer is skeptical of testimony that comes purely from memory, especially if it was from a long time ago. To complicate matters, your recollections will get tinted by the way you perceive the events later in life. Feel bad about your childhood? Well, your childhood memories may get darker. Feel good about it then there's a good chance that the farther away from those early years that you get, the more that it will look like Leave It to Beaver. Not only that, but you're probably only likely to remember the things that stand out, because those are the memories that you'll think back to and remember again and again. You're basically training your brain to recognize that event as important. And as a consequence, we aren't likely to remember all the moments in our childhoods where we had to eat something we didn't want to, or were frustrated because we couldn't do that one thing, or the exasperated look on our parents' faces when we threw a tantrum for the umpteenth time. It's something that happens to all of us, and we really don't have any control over it. And as a consequence, when we're reading Asser's account of Alfred's childhood, which is wholly reliant on Alfred's memories, we have to keep in mind that at best, these are coming from a man who is late in life, and who has remembered and molded these events many times in his mind, without even knowing it. Want a good example of how crazy memory can be? A good friend of mine's earliest childhood memory is of being chased by a daddy long legs. But here's the twist. The daddy long legs was as big as a house. Now logic dictates that this didn't really happen, but we're left asking the question, was this a dream that she remembered so many times that it became part of her childhood reality? Or was she actually chased by a daddy long legs, and her young mind remembered and exaggerated the fear of that event so many times that now she has a memory of a giant 1950s B-movie-sized spider chasing her down the street? We'll never know, but it does give us a concrete example of how unreliable memory can be, and also why Cat is fun at parties. So. Given all of this, when we read Asser's account stating that Alfred, quote, was greatly loved more than all his brothers by his father and mother, indeed by everybody, with a universal and profound love, we should probably keep in mind the way memory works. Granted, there definitely was a political angle to this that we've been talking about for weeks, and it's possible that's all this was. But you also have the fact that Alfred's mum died when he was about six, and his father died when he was about eight or nine. And he was a late-in-life, sickly child. So he might have just had happy, doting memories, because that's what early childhood is often like, especially for a child who needs extra attention. And those memories heightened over time. The one thing we probably shouldn't do, though, is assume that this was a completely accurate assessment of the emotional state of his parents and the people of Wessex. How would a six- to nine-year-old Alfred even begin to quantify the way he stacked up with his siblings? But, 
Even though that part is unreliable, it doesn't mean that the entire account is completely worthless. It actually gives us a window into what Alfred's early life was like because it mentions that he was raised in court, and that gives us an insight into the man that he would grow up to be. I mean, Alfred being raised in court is huge, and it's a departure from the way the Anglo-Saxon nobles tended to raise their kids, and that might account for why Alfred felt more loved. Typically, athlings would be sent out and raised by noble foster parents, and then children from key families would be sent to be raised in court as well. We talked about this a bit in the Anglo-Saxon childhood episode on the members feed, but based upon what we've been talking about lately in the show, I'm sure you can guess why this was a good idea for the Anglo-Saxons. They were breaking down those clannish ties, and instead creating a shared identity that was built upon the kingdom and the royal family. Bonds between important families were being formed. Children were developing ties with their liege lords that might even rival their loyalties to their own families. It was a clever solution to the problem of, how do you get a bunch of traumatized, clannish, xenophobic families to start seeing themselves as part of something larger? But Alfred wasn't being sent away like his siblings probably were. Why? Unfortunately, King Athelwolf didn't commission a biography the way Alfred did, so we're just left to guess. But here's some stuff for you to consider. Alfred was a late-in-life child, the baby of the family, and he was sickly. Once he was old enough to be fostered, Queen Osber was either dead or soon would be dead. We don't know what killed her, but for all we know, she might have been sick for quite a while. My point being that the Anglo-Saxons had feelings too, and the decision to keep Alfred close to court very well might have been just because he was so young, wasn't very robust, and Athelwolf already had enough tragedy to last a lifetime. He'd already lost his firstborn son, and his wife soon thereafter. So keeping his last child close to him, as Alfred was the final link to Queen Osber, might have been the sole motivating factor. Something else to consider is that the kingdom was up to its eyeballs in Vikings. Keeping Alfred close to court, rather than sending him out to live with a local lord, might have seemed like the best way to keep him safe, since that local lord might end up being overrun by a bunch of Norsemen next summer. Besides, who needs fostering to develop bonds when you've got a common enemy in the form of a bunch of Scandinavian pyromaniacs? Ultimately, we can't know why Alfred was raised in court, but this upbringing would have had a great deal of influence on his development. He would have been at the center of West Saxon politics, and while much of what was going on around him would have been a bewildering blur for a young child, it still would have made the young Athling a known quantity in the kingdom and given him a general sense of what ruling a kingdom was like. He would have been developing his public persona pretty much from the moment he was able to speak. And this really starts to become clear when we see the sort of king he would become. Alfred seems entirely at ease when it comes to rule, and the image that we're given is of a regal, thoughtful king. And of course he would have been, since he was honing that skill set since he was a small child. But that isn't to say that Alfred was all grown up. He was still a child. We're even told that he and his friends would run around, quote, riding sticks and manifold other games imitating their elders, end quote. And I love this little detail. The idea of Alfred as a little boy pretending that he was riding a horse like his father and older brothers. 
I wonder if in his mind he was a member of the Werod, or if he was out hunting. Regardless of what it was, it's adorable, especially when you consider the probable setting for this. They were probably at one of their wooden palaces, or at one of their subjects' estates, where King Athelwolf, who might have been a single father at this point, would have been feasting and discussing with his counselors and advisors what to do next with regard to the Viking threat, the Cornish threat, the Mercians, the Welsh, and myriad other issues. And then galloping up the hallway comes Alfred and his own little court of five-year-olds doing their best to hunt the house cat. Judging on how Alfred felt about his father and how he was secure in his father's love, my guess is that Athelwolf would have taken pleasure at the sight of his young son playing with his friends. It's pure conjecture, but it's not hard to imagine that a sight like that would have been a welcome respite for a man who would have been all too world-weary. But Alfred couldn't be a child forever, and as he aged, his duties began to take on more weight than his boyhood friends. For example, when he was six years old, his father started having him witness charters. Yeah, at six. And actually, he would have been six at the latest. That age is just based on the first charter we've found where he's listed as a witness. But who knows if there were earlier charters that didn't survive the over thousand years between then and now. So now, he was taking part in courtly duties and Alfred's recreational activities began to become more serious as well, though they still did have notes of that earlier play that he engaged in. Drawing upon his experience at the head of his toddler wild hunt, Alfred became a prolific hunter. Now, this would have been expected of him, as he was an athling and hunting was a noble pursuit. Though through it, he and his fellow athlings would have been learning skills that would be necessary later in life. Riding, working together, and of course, how to wield a weapon. And because Alfred was part of the king's court, and courts during this period were nomadic for large parts of the year, he also would have had a tremendous amount of opportunities to practice hunting. For large parts of his young life, he would have been either on the road and hunting while they traveled, or he would have been at various estates throughout the kingdom and then hunting in the surrounding lands. Now, as we talked about in earlier episodes, huntsmen would travel with a court and provide game when needed and able. So Alfred would have been able to learn from the best hunters in Wessex. And hunting requires a great deal of moving through the wilderness, so he would have also become very familiar with the lay of the land for massive portions of Wessex. Not just where the towns and villages were, but also the shape and features of the woods, swamps, and wastelands. He would have become very familiar with the more traditional West Saxon holdings, like Somerset or Selwood, but he also was traveling with his father to territories as far as Cornwall. He couldn't have known it at the time, but knowledge like this was like gold for a future warlord. Now, of course, Asser tells us that Alfred was the bestest at hunting. He says, speaking of Alfred, quote, He strives continually in every branch of hunting, and not in vain for no one else could approach him in skill and success in that activity, just as in all other gifts of God, as I have so often seen for myself, end quote. Now this part is really interesting. And sure, Asser is writing for Alfred, so he's not going to write, oh, bless. Alfred really does try his hardest. But still, 
It's interesting that Asser puts his own name on the line by stating that he was an eyewitness to Alfred's abilities. So I'm thinking that he probably was quite a good hunter. And hunting does seem to have been an activity that was a comfort for him throughout the rest of his life. When the pressures of rule were too great, when his body was in revolt from what appears to have been Crohn's disease, when the tragedies of his life were too heavy, he still had hunting. And to that end, his household later in life had a full complement of falconers, dog keepers, hawk trainers, and other assorted professions that you would expect out of someone who loved to hunt. Through these accounts of Alfred's skill as a hunter, we're also starting to get a sense of what sort of personality he had and what would carry him through the rest of his life. We're told that he was someone who practiced hunting in all of its forms, not just one, and that he did so continually and was perpetually looking to improve. That's a recurring theme in these stories of Alfred's childhood, and of his adulthood as well, for that matter. Asser is telling us of a man who is forever looking to better himself, and is always looking for a new challenge. He's telling us of a man who, once he sets a task for himself, he follows through on it with a relentless, almost obsessive energy. This is reflected in one story that we're given of Alfred when he was very young, and he was interested in poetry. We talked about this briefly in an earlier episode, but let me quickly recount it. So we're told that he won a contest with his brothers by memorizing a bunch of poems first, and thereby he won a prized book from his mother, Osber. And as we talked about last time, I was left with the question of, did it happen exactly like that, with a boy of probably no older than six outthinking his adult siblings? And I don't know. It's possible that he was a savant, but here's the thing. The accepted age for a boy to start learning how to read was seven. So the idea that Alfred could win a contest at the age of six, at the oldest, isn't in keeping with the teachings of the early Christian church. And if the church said that six was too young for letters, Alfred's family probably would have listened. We're talking about a different time here. This wasn't a simple guideline. If the church says that you shouldn't learn to read before you're seven, then learning to read at five or six could put your soul at risk. And it gets worse when you consider that Asser himself says that Alfred was illiterate until he was about 12. And while I tend to view a lot of what Asser has to say through a skeptical lens, it's totally believable that Alfred's education was put into chaos following his parents' deaths. His mother died before he was old enough to be properly taught how to read, and then his father died shortly thereafter. And after that happened, where would he go? He'd probably be under the care of his older brother, right? But given the succession system that we talked about in earlier episodes, how likely do you think that his older brothers were to ensure that Alfred was getting a good education? I think it's entirely believable that, following his mother's and father's deaths, there was a disruption in his education, and as a consequence, he didn't learn how to read until he was about 12. And besides, why would Asser lie about that? He actually mentions it as a way to condemn the inadequacies of Alfred's early teachers. So I'm thinking that the story of Alfred's early illiteracy must be true. Lawyers call this a statement against interest, the idea being that why would someone fabricate a story that actually hurts their self-interest? So I'm thinking that something about the poetry story isn't quite right. I mean, it's possible that maybe he just memorized it wrote, and then he had a book that he wasn't able to read. But 
then we're missing part of that story. Who taught him to memorize those poems wrote? And still, why was he able to outperform his older siblings? There's just something fishy about the whole thing. But beyond the specifics of that story, it still seems to get at that same theme that we so often see with Alfred. Of a bright, focused, and driven man who appears to thrive when given a challenge. Asser also points out that later in life, Alfred delighted in teaching the huntsmen at court how to better improve their techniques. So we're getting the image of someone who didn't just love to hunt. He loved to teach. He wanted to share knowledge, not just acquire it. Now, it's impossible to know exactly what is myth and what is fact. But my gut reaction to what we learn of Alfred from Asser and from other sources is that the truth of these stories is found in the personality that they seem to reflect. And to be honest, I like him. If this is really the man he was, I can see why Asser was so keen on him and why others would come to follow him into battle. But as much as I like him, I'm running out of time and we haven't even gotten to the point where his life got completely turned upside down by the death of his father and, of course, his shady older brother taking the throne. So we're going to have to turn this one into a two-parter. Next time, we're going to finish the story of Alfred's early life being wrecked by the death of his father. And we'll also cover what was going on with everyone else after the death of King Athelwolf, including the new King Athelbald and the Dowager Queen Judith. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. 